It's no secret the NFL has a problem with race. Think Colin Kaepernick. Think Brian Flores. But this isn't a new problem. It's one that started as far back as the 1930s, with a ban on Black players in the NFL, with a past that informs the present. Blackballed is a new miniseries podcast from The Ringer about the four men who broke the color barrier in football. I'm your host, Chelsea Stark-Jones. Blackballed is dropping soon on The Ringer NFL feed. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. What up, what up, what up? This is Logan Murdoch from Real Ones. Um, just want to give you guys a quick disclaimer. Today's episode had some technical difficulties and we had to use the Zoom audio um, on Raj's sound. Still a great episode. Still a lot of vibes. Great stories. Um, but just want to give you guys that disclaimer. Real Ones, up next. What's poppin'? Real ones. Logan Murdoch here in Civilization. Raja Bell, live from the Keys. How you doing, Raja? I'm good. Like a little, you know, technical difficulty. Obviously, when you're dealing with someone 46 plus years old, but I think we got it figured out. Um, <laughs> we got seven kids from the ages of 15 to six running around this bad boy. We're doing good. Raja, you got Raja. You guys can't see this, but Raja is sitting at a table right now, a table full of delightful kids treats. Um, with in the background, I'm looking right now. He has a lot of vegetation and a lot, lot of nice floral arrangements that only Florida can 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 provide. Um, it's it's looking really nice outside. Um, Raja, how is it being a dad at this point? Before we get to NBA talk, are you are you are you locked in? What stage of dadism are you at right now? So we're in this weird, we're in this like weird. Being a dad is great, first and foremost. It's the best thing about gang, gang. straight up or that we've ever done. But my point being, we're in this weird spot like of having 15, 14 who kind of, you know, do their own thing. My 15-year-old drives, like, uh, they've got their own little worlds. And so typically when your kids get to that age and then my younger one's about 11, my younger boy, so they can all kind of go do their thing. But we got this six-year-old little mama that's always attached to my wife. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of straddling, like, having some time to go do some shit on our own because older ones are kind of self-sufficient, but, but also now we got the six year old little one who's precious, but she requires a lot at this point. So it's great. And we're kind of in between those two worlds. 
You're like the Golden State Warriors. There's two timelines in one that you're just trying to figure it out, right? Is that where we're at? God, I so appreciate you. So that was so well done. <laughs> no, man. But uh, as you guys see, bro, but right, right on vacation. So we're gonna. This is gonna be a shorter episode than normal. Just, just, just FYI for you guys. One thing I want to get into. So Dylan Brooks, who we've talked about for a long time, probably like this is Dylan Brooks podcast at this point, but I just wanted to pick your brain really quickly on his interaction with Clay Thompson and Clay Thompson telling him the four rings talk. And um, on one hand, I understand Clay and, but I think it speaks to a larger issue that the Warriors at this point are washed. And now that they're doing the thing that LeBron is doing now where they're like, yeah, remember what I used to do instead of in, 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 in a myriad of losses is where this is happening. Um, what did you think about that point when Clay did that? And what does that say about where the overall stance of the Warriors and how, how they look in these streets? Um, I, I felt Clay Thompson a little bit. Like I, I get it, man. Like, you're very accomplished. You guys were the big cats, not that long ago. I mean, you won it last year. So you kind of hold on to like, we can do that whenever we want, or we could pop back into that mode. So I kind of, I feel him, the frustration, the probably in the, the embarrassment of Dylan Brooks, just serving um, you guys and, and just steady stream of, of shit coming out of his mouth while he does it. Leave Dylan Brooks alone. I can't speak for the whole NBA. Okay. I'm not sitting here telling you that Dylan Brooks is kryptonite for any other team in the league, but as it pertains to golden state, leave him be. <laughs> Don't leave Dylan Brooks alone, man. Dylan Brooks is there for, for all of it. Um, and y'all ain't got no real answers from Memphis right now. So let him live. Who are the guys that, because Dylan Brooks, I feel like, goes into this category. He's not an all-star. He has a long career. Maybe he'll be an all-star at some point. But who were the guys that you played against that as we might not, as fans or media, just think of him as like the bet, like one of the best guards or one of the best scorers or one of these things. But like he's gonna get cooking and you better not talk to him. Like who were them guys that that fit the Dylan Brooks type mole? back in your day or back in the days when you played, like, and how do you, how do you beat that ultimately when he's in your head and he's just fucking, he only has buckets for you. Um, shoot, I'm not, I'm not sure. Cause I, th that's a tough question, Logan, because I didn't guard the Dylan Brooks types of players. Usually like I guarded the Stephs and the clays. So anybody I guarded typically could cook, you know? Um, so it wasn't like a random dude. I didn't have that assignment where you were like, Hey Raj, you might have a night off. Oh shit. No, you don't. He's cooking now. My nights were always the, the best player on the offensively, usually on the, on your wing or in your backcourt. Uh, but there were a lot of guys that, and this is, I think bigger picture and the point that I'd make all the time on this pod is while Dylan Brooks may be a little better than the, the guy that I normally talk about. There are a lot of dudes in the NBA that, can get buckets, can play, given opportunity, can step in and be the villain in a, in a story like that, you know? And so, I mean, shit, I, I, it, I'm drawing a blank as to names off the top of my head, but you could easily find them. They're littered across the NBA. Like I played that role in some regards, like who would have thought in game seven against Milwaukee, in the Eastern conference finals in 2001 that a dude on a 10 day would come in in five minutes and score 11 quick points to, to, to spark the six. Like, you know what I mean? Like no one would see that coming. So 
I hate to use myself, but I, I have to because I can't really think of anyone else. But it happens all the time. Do you ever like when you're you're in the league? Do you ever? What is the Raja Bell guy? It feels like you see a lot of guys like this in yourself when you played. What is it like when you when you see that? And what are those type of guys look like? Because it was just hella funny how you said that, right? Where you're like, yo. You know, I, fuck, I don't know what a Dylan Brooks is like, man. I'm not sure. Wait, I was that one time. <laughs> you, and that's a recurring theme in, in, in the real ones pod. Look, look, I think that, again, if, you know, I'd be, I'd be, I am very grateful for the career that I had and, you know, the way I'm portrayed as like this great defender. And even though I'm not sure that I was that, like I was a good defender, I tried my ass off, but people portray me like, like that. Um, and so while that's very flattering and stuff, like I, I thought of myself as more than that, you know, like I, I was a really good shooter once they started letting me shoot, you know, I, I shot over 40% from a career for three. Like I led the league in threes made in, in a season. Um, you know, I averaged 15 points a game as the third and fourth option on teams. And so I think this isn't, I'm sorry as it's coming off about me, but what I'm trying to answer your question is guys that don't get credit for being more than this one thing and have this hunger in them to kind of bust out of that mold. Those are the type of dudes that, that I, that I frequently gravitate towards, right. Where like, I don't just see myself as a defender. Like I don't just see myself as Dylan Brooks as an irritant that, you know, is a shit talker. Like I could come out here and cook you and give you buckets. Like I don't put me in that box. And so I think the Dylan Brooks is of the world. Like there are other guys, you know, scattered around the NBA and they've, they've always existed and they always will exist of not stars, not, not superstars for sure. Definitely not stars, but you know, this middle tier of player that feels like they can really contribute to winning in a lot of different ways, but for one reason or another, they're kind of put in this box and everyone wants to label them as that. And when they step out of that box and they contribute to winning and they're popping their shit, I'm here for it. <laughs> How important though? Like, cause I, I've come around full transparency. I've kind of come around on Dylan Brooks over the last couple of weeks. I was like, I was really just, I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like after that, after that, what he was saying about Dre, I'm like, what are you doing, bro? But like, he is living every one of his raps over the last couple of weeks. Right. And like, I guess my overall question is, and I think this to be true. I think that Dylan Brooks, if he could, you know, maybe pass the ball to Ja when he's on the team, when he, when Ja comes back. Right. And like, not always take on the offense on his own when he doesn't have to, I, you know, I think that they could be good, but I think like he is very vital for that team for years to come in terms of you need a guy that is not your star player to not be scared. You know, like Draymond fit that mold a few years back, right? Where like, where you need those type of guys to be the heartbeat of the team sometimes, right? Is, is that, is that fair? It's absolutely fair. Um, and, and look, I, I had a problem with what Dylan was saying specifically about Draymond and Draymond's game. Right. I thought that was unfair to Draymond. I thought that was, uh, completely diminishing who Draymond was as a player and what he's achieved and what he's meant to a team that's achieved a whole lot. Like I thought that was out of pocket, but in terms of Dylan Brooks, you know, and who, who he is in terms of, of, of shit talking and, and getting himself motivated like that. Um, the only beef I have with it is when it, when it becomes distracting to the team and when your team has so much of it and, and you're doing it all before you've really accomplished anything. But, 
but he is living his raps. He is out here producing. And some dudes need that type of energy. Like they need to be the villain or paint themselves into that villain corner to, to, to have the juice on a nightly basis. And so if that's what he needs, I'm not begrudging him that. Um, I think that a lot of teams need the guy that you're talking about, Logan. Um, and a lot of the players that I kind of talked about in the question before wind up becoming that to a team. They are your on a night where everyone's tired and it'd be easy to just get back on the plane and go home. They are your guy that gets into just enough shit to get everybody like, yo, wait, what the fuck's going on? Hold up. Hold up now. Mm-hmm. We're, let's go. Okay. Let's, let's get, let's play. You know, they, they, they become the dude that if you run up on your, on the team's best player, um, you know, he's, he's like, yo, we're not here for that. And you know, my buddy, <laughs> it's funny. My buddy Gene always said this, like he played with me at, at Florida international university. And he'd always say, yo man, like every NBA team, every star has to have like an enforcer with him. He was like, it's every star has to have an enforcer. And I, I never really thought of the enforcer role like hockey, but, and they don't let you fight and scrap, but the guy you're talking about, the Dylan Brooks of the world, he becomes that in any situation where someone is running a foul of that star. Like he ain't, he's not with it. It lets the team know that we're not with it. A, a lot of NBA players, it's not like football where you grow up hitting people in the mouth for a living and you love the contact and you just hear the crack each other. Like that's not the case. And so while some NBA players do like the contact and are physical, there is a whole lot of them that want to play in tuxedos. <laughs> you, you, yeah. see them, you see them crying every fucking night. Yeah. You see them out there whining and crying. They beat the free throw line 25 times. And if they don't get there 30 times, they're still crying. Yeah. Well, for every one of those, there's got to be a dude somewhere on that bench that if somebody can ruffle his feathers and get under his skin, that dude off the bench comes in and lets everyone in the arena know that we're not here for that. Listen, you look at like the last few champions, right? Obviously, last year, Warriors have Draymond Green. The year before that, Milwaukee, all right, has fucking Bobby Portis, right? Um, Miami Heat, when I think about, you know, them in their glory days had big Udonis Haslam who not going for that shit, right? Even when, even when Udonis is on the bench, like even in his later years, you know, you still don't want to fuck with him. Right. And like every chance, historically, every Mike had Charles Oakley at a point in time. Right. And, um, you know, had the rest had, had enforced, had, had enforcement. You need that not only because, um, you know, not, it's not because also the star player can't be about that life. It's more so because the star player is kind of too valuable for for him to just be popping off at the mouth all the time. You can't, you can't, he has to be above the fray. And so you take that, like, I'm sure you were that way with, with Steve, right? Like how was like when you were, when you were, that's weird. Cause we were talking about this with JTA with Steph, like a few years ago, right? You were kind of like that with Steve. Did you consciously know like, yo man, Steve can't do this. He can't get this technical foul. Or maybe that's just not in his DNA to just be like talking hell of shit. I have to me tricks, me tricks or the rest of the guys have to like, yo, step in if some shit pop off with Steve. I wasn't super conscious of protecting Steve or protecting Steve from technical fouls. What typically happens is, you know, if, if you're being true to yourself, like I come from a place and from a basketball place where I, I'm not taking anything. Like I was raised under the, like, you got to fight me to get my lunch money. Like it, it, we're, this is, this is mine. And everything I did on a basketball court was, was in that model. Like I can't give you anything. If you take it from me, 
cool. But then you got to see me again tomorrow. So we're going to do this until, you know, you get sick of, of this. And so what happened, what happens is like, you take that out onto the court and, and, and you see your team as your family. So when, when, when somebody starts messing with somebody in your family, I mean, you got to let them know that we aren't for that. Now it's not just about me not being with that. Like the team that I currently play on my, my brothers and my coaches and whoever that is like, we are not for that. And so, you know, like when something happens to a Steve or tricks or someone like that, whether, whether they want to be in it or not, the people on the team that, that fit that mode usually step in and say, Hey man, like, you know, and, and the thing is NBA dudes know who, who, who gets down like that and who doesn't get down like that. Can you dig what I'm saying? And so like, well, y'all see them outside too. Like you guys see them not just in the arena. Y'all know them as people. Yeah. But like, let's use, use Steve, for example, like everybody that we play knows Steve don't be out there talking a lot of shit. He's not out there throwing cheap shots or doing anything like that. He's just cooking. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you running up on Steve in any real capacity, Logan, there's a code to that, right? Like Steve is not in the game like that. Like he's not there for that type of shit. So don't run up on Steve, you know? And if you do, then you probably are, if a team has, you know, the right support around Steve, you're going to have to deal with somebody who, who is more in the game like that. And that's just the way it works. What about a, like, I think about a, another good example. I think about the 01 Sixers. Right. As an example of this, because when I look at that roster, honestly, one of my favorite rosters just to watch. Right. You got you got you. Well, you towards the end of the season. So it might be a bad example because you came during the postseason. But like Matumbo. Right. You got George Lynch, who not taking no else at all. He's not. And you got, you know, you got Aaron McKee, who's from Philly. He's not taking no else. Like, what was it like to. Like, because Ivers is a guy that talked a bit more shit than Steve Nash to refs. Right. How do you make sure you defend AI who is also with the shits too? And like make sure that you are making sure he is good as a superstar. That wasn't my job at that point. Like I was I, I was <laughs> I was a spectator more than a participant. Um, but I think that that team more than any other team that I played on in the NBA was was cut from a, a, a lot of guys because of the way you had to build a team around AI. Yeah. You had to build it with, you know, bigger, more physical guards so that they could, you know, they could, they could guard twos and Chuck could slide over and guard ones. You had to build it with a lot of defensive presence because Chuck was going to do most of the, the scoring. Um, and you, and you built it to defend. So by its nature, it was, it was built with a lot of dudes that, that could handle theirs, you know, and a level of toughness and grit because that's what Chuck was about. So I think, you know, that team had a lot of guys on its roster that given, given the opportunity would, would stand in the paint, including Chuck, like, you know, he, he wasn't one of the guys that, that always stayed above the fray in that regard. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, he'd be in the shits with you sometimes. So I'm thinking about Chuck real quick. There's this clip in the one finals and I don't know if you know it, I might've brought it up to you, but there's a clip that always comes up in the 01 finals that people have been asking me to ask you. This is actually a legendary clip, so I really wish you knew because you're the only one that could actually talk about what they were talking about. At the, there's like after a timeout and Iverson is going at Kobe Bryant. Like they're talking shit. It's not even like no disrespect. I mean, I don't know what it was because Raja doesn't remember what happened, but um, they're getting into it and it seems like it's like, you know, it's, it's finals talk. And you, you see Raja 
who is like 20 something years old, just like I'm here and I'm just, I'm, you just look like you, you, you're in this moment where you're like, I'm fucking here and I have to be razor focused, but you're right behind the fray of what happens when they're talking shit. And it's a very legendary clip. It's Kobe, uh, it's Kobe, uh, Iverson. And then like, Raja Bell being, you know, this Forrest Gump character who's just in the mix. Like, he's just like, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, look, I wasn't in their conversation, so I don't know exactly what was happening. But if you've ever been on a basketball court, like, and, and you like to be in the shits, then you're acutely aware of when people start to popping off and you find yourself getting closer to that situation in case it does pop off. Right. Like, so, Right. I, I'm aware that they're having their moments. And so we slide up to be close enough to it. Like that. If anything should go wrong, I don't even know Kobe. You didn't know him then, especially then you didn't even know. Uh, like, and I wasn't really tripping off of like, Kobe. I mean, I, this is hard for people to understand, but like, I, I, didn't, I didn't care nothing about Kobe Bryant or Shaquille O'Neal. Like I was trying to, I was trying to eat. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so I right. couldn't be in awe of anything or what, I was getting close enough to that so that if something popped off, we were close enough to that. That was as simple as that. So I wasn't in their conversation. Um, and I don't know what was said, but I do remember the tenor of that night and it was lambs being led to the slaughter. Um, right. Like that was everyone's idea of how that series was going to play out. And, you know, ultimately it it wasn't a, a great series, but in game one, I think that whole, definitely Los Angeles and probably the world people were kind of shook. We went in there and beat them. And in game two, if I'm not mistaken, we were, we were rocking, you know, they beat us in game two in Staples, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy win. And then we wound up sustaining a couple injuries that people don't talk about a lot. Um, and the Lakers went on and did what they did. It's not an excuse, but the point was, I think, you know, number one, it was the NBA finals. And number two, it was a little more of a test than I think, people and including the Lakers thought that they were in for at least in those first couple games. Bruh, I was, I was, I remember I was seven years old during that uh, 01 finals. Right. And I remember that game one. I remember like it was yesterday, dog. We was at uncle money's house in Hayward. And I remember watching that shit as a big Laker fan being very surprised at how y'all went up and beat the, beat the Lakers. And it wound up me being a Lakers fan to it's st- being heartbroken to practicing the move of stepping over a motherfucker. Cause my little, my <laughs> at uncle money's house, they had a play court. They had like one of those little play courts or whatever. Right. And uh, my little cousin was there and we just was practicing that shot <laughs> that Iverson did <laughs> like shook the, we're shaking the shit out of people and then like stepping over motherfuckers. That's what we was doing after that game. That was a surreal night, man. Like we, so we won that game. Do I remember getting on the bus at the Beverly Wilshire? I remember, you know, that was a team of professionals. Matumbo and them used to dress up like and wear suits and stuff. So I didn't have a heavy suit game. But Mike Woodson, shout out to Mike Woodson. I think they lost last night to Miami. And he coaching it, uh, he's the head coach at Indiana University. Now Woodall was one of my vets. So he actually gave me some suits, right? Because I didn't I was coming on 10 day. He gave me some suits. I had them tailored. And so I was getting I was getting dressed for this game and I didn't have a tie. So I had to go downstairs to like the gift shop. There's a little, there was a little men's store on the corner right outside the hotel um, on, on Rodeo, I think it was. And so I grabbed this tie. I went and found the one I liked and I went to ring it up. And the man was like, yeah, that's $300. I was like, what? I said, wait, wait a minute, bro. Like, don't, 
but there was nothing in that bad boy for less and I needed the tie. So I remember buying it. And this is why I remember it because as I strolled probably like the, I don't know, maybe 200 yards back to like the, the driveway of the hotel, I, I looked up and there was a dude standing there and he was shooting signs at me. Like, like he was talking sign language and I didn't know what was happening. And then yeah. I was like, Oh, that's what's happening. So then I got my, t- I got my tail back into the, Oh yeah. 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 So, so like, I mean, it was when we left, when we left in the buses to go to Staples, they were lined up out there like Brewers. They were ready to go. Okay. Right. The city was on fire. Um, then the, you know, the game started. I really had no feel for whether I was going to play or not. I know they used me in the last series in only two games. Mind you, I had only played in really game six. It was a blowout in Milwaukee. They threw me in at the end of the game. And then game seven, I didn't know I was going in that game. So I didn't know whether he was going to use me or not. And he calls me in the game. It was just happening so fast, bro. I didn't have time to really think about anything or care about where I was or what was going on. This was like fight or flight. Like you got a chance, you go eat or you got to go back to the CBA. So we, we got it in and I just kind of Chuck was hooping. And I hit a couple shots. And we were getting after it. And I remember being in the locker room after the game, I was sitting between Aaron McKee, um, and Allen Iverson and, uh, Nor Noriega's, uh, what's, what's the song, man? It was, it was playing. It was, was it body in a trunk? No, it wasn't body in a trunk. It was, uh, it was one of the early cuts on that album, but it doesn't matter. Larry Brown, um, Larry Brown was walking through the locker room and Allen Iverson grabbed him and said, yo, where the fuck did you get him? And he pointed at me. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. It was one of the coolest moments of my life. He said, this isn't verbatim. You got to forgive me. This is 2001 and there's a lot of adrenaline flowing. But the gist of it was, where the fuck did you get him? Or where the fuck did he come from? Because I had just played big, hit a huge left-hand layup that was just fluky as hell in, in overtime. And Larry Brown said something to him like, yeah, he, you know, he has the same shit that you have in terms of heart. Like that was oh. the, the synopsis of it. And it was, it was one of my forever all time moments in the NBA. Bro. Like, so I get this sometimes just covering it. Right. Like I remember having this feeling, I think I was at game six of the, of the finals last year in Boston and you get this feeling, or at least it's just like, you know, maybe you got it later. Cause you're kind of more in the moment, but I get this feeling that we're like walking and like living in history, like in a history book or a textbook or some shit during those times. When do you get to the point? Cause you're, you have to, I feel like you're going in and out of that where you're talking about like, you know, we're talking about the Kobe Iverson moment where you're like, I'm just locked the fuck in. But then afterwards you're like, I guess the adrenaline pops out and then like, you're like, Oh shit, this actually happened. What the fuck is life at those moments? When do you get, when do you go get in and out of those moments where you're like, fuck, I'm living in history right now too. And I'm just hooping. Like where, how do you, where do you go in and out of those modes? I did not do it. Well, it's one of, it's one of the regrets that I have. I would have kept it. I would have kept a journal or, you know, we didn't have cell phones with video cameras, but I would have kept like a video diary or something like that. Just kind of chronicling what happened every night. I was just in it, Logan. And especially that first year where it was all happening so, so fast to me, like that first, I don't know, it was like a 10th of a year, but that playoff run, it was happening so fast and I didn't have time to really 
soak it in or digest it. And it is the old cliche of like, I thought, man, I'll be back here. You know, I remember being at the spectrum, like this was media, media day or not media day, but it was one of the days in between games two and three where we're back in Philly and uh, we're back in Philly and we're not practicing at what was, it was first union back then, but we're not practicing there. The The spectrum was still standing. So we went over to the spectrum, which was hella cool for me because my mom's from Philly and I grew up. I mean, I love Dr. J and Maurice Cheeks and, you know, fucking Bobby Jones, Moses Malone, like Mark Ivoroni. Those were my dudes. So now I'm in the spectrum. This is hollow ground, but this is really cool. I'm in the locker room. I'm out on the court. And what descended, this had to have been before game one, before we went to LA, because I remember it because I had never seen that much media. Mm, yeah finals media is different it was different and the media outlets were from all over the world so there were people asking you questions in you know broken french and broken portuguese and you know all these different languages and i was i was like man this was about i don't know a month and a half ago that i was in a locker room where there wasn't a single person asking anyone anything yeah (laughs) it's weird do you know what i mean and now there's like and so it was just happening so fast and, and I thought I'd be back there every year. And then, you know, I never, I never got to go back to the finals, but I do, if, if there were regrets, like people asked me if there were any regrets, I would have chronicled that better. So I could go back and like, see exactly how I was feeling and see what, what registered with me that night. And maybe I'd have some of those conversations written down. Now, Rusit, it's, it's interesting. You say just soaking in the moment. Cause on a personal level, like I got on the Warriors beat when I was like, very early 20s, right? And why when I get there, they're going to the finals every year. Like, it, it was to the point where, like, in the beginning of the season, we had already booked our finals hotels. Like, we had already knew it was going to happen, right? Like, it was like, this is every single day. And I remember just, like, my first year, they go to the finals. Then they win in Cleveland. My second year is Kevin, the year they go to the finals in Toronto, but Kevin uh, is about to leave. And then... You start thinking about these moments like, I'm supposed to be here, bro. This always happens. This is what it is. And then you go the following year where they fucking suck and it's a pandemic year. And it's like, oh, this is Steve Carr always called it the real NBA. Like, this is, this is, we're living in a fantasy on these other times. And it really was like, well, fuck, man. Like, I don't know if I'm ever, I think this team sucks. I don't think they're ever going to get back. Right. And I'm thinking, like, I wish I would have, you're, cause when you're, especially when you're young, you're caught up in the moment so much. That you're just like, it's all vibes, like similar to you in your first all-star game, right? Where your all-star weekend where you're just like, oh man, I, I got to do all of these things and you don't realize it's going to end. And it's the league moves so quickly that you have to soak it in. If you're going to, you know, and your career goes fast so quickly that you got to soak it in or, or it's just going to be a waste. I was blessed to, to have a lot of footage and pictures from, from when I played. So like, if I ever want to go back down memory lane, um, you know, I could dig into old photos and stuff like that. And it takes me back. Um, I, I, you know, relationships are huge, obviously in anything, but I've got some that have withstood the test of time. So like we can always hop on the phone or grab some beers and we go, we go back to that place. Um, but it did, it happened super fast. And one of the hardest things, like you said, Steve Kerr talks about it being the real NBA. Like I was really blessed. And I went from the Sixers that played in the finals. Um, and then they were, we were a playoff team the next year. I think we lost to Boston with, uh, with um and, and Antoine Walker and Paul Pierce, a young Antoine and Paul, like they were tough. So so then the next year I wind up with Dallas and and winning the Western Conference Finals, playing a huge, I mean, the Trailblazer series was fantastic. Yeah. 
Sacramento Kings, and then Steve Kerr goes crazy and, and keeps us out of the what should have been the finals. Um, then I go two years in, in Utah, which we didn't have playoff success, but I had personal success that allowed me to kind of you know transition into Phoenix. But those were really good teams that were always playing for something, right? So mm-hmm. this is pretty much what I know. And one of the hardest things for an NBA player, or at least it was for me, is to experience that level of like team success and 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 organizational like functionality and and the true family environment that it should feel like when things are good, and then go to places where you're you're not going to make the playoffs and there is a fracture like in the locker room and yeah. it's it, you know it's just. And it's not pointing fingers at anything. It's just a very hard thing to do when you know what that tastes like. I guess it's like in life, like, right. When you sure. in a level of success and then you got to go backwards, like that's a hard thing. Yeah, sure. Especially like when you see, you know, when you're at the, when you're at the bottom and this is just in life, like when you're not where you think you're supposed to be, you start looking at other people and you start comparing yourselves and all that stuff. That's one of the things. And, you know, you start comparing your, your experiences to other, what other teams are going through now. Like when did you hit the real NBA? Was it Charlotte or was it, was it when you went to Golden State for that, that was that last stretch, was that the, the quote unquote real NBA for you as when it started? Yeah, probably, probably Charlotte. Um, you know, it was definitely Utah because when, when I got to Utah, they had just Malone had just went to the Lakers and stock had retired. Right. So there was this right. void and we weren't great, but Utah was this like weird NBA world where it was kind of its own entity, right? Like Jerry Sloan and the structure and stability was always there. And no matter what the roster looked like, you were going to be competing, you know? And so we almost messed around and got into the playoffs with a team that if I told you who was on it, you'd be like, what? Like we, we almost got into the playoffs. So that wasn't really real world because everything was ran well. And, and, you know, the expectation level, even though we didn't make the playoffs and the support from the city, even though we didn't make the playoffs was all still there. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you were still in this space that everything felt kind of like it did in Dallas and and Philly where hella support, you know, hella expectations, so on and so forth. But when I got to Charlotte, um, and they hadn't won in a while. And this, listen, this is where they were as a franchise at that point, you know? Like there wasn't a lot of continuity on a roster. They were trying to figure out the pieces that work together. I probably wasn't a great fit for that. Um, they, yes, that was my, that was, those were tough. And then, you know, at the time when I got traded out to Golden State, a young Steph, Monty Ellis, like that wasn't, that wasn't what Golden State is now. And then as I went back to Utah for what I thought was going to be real structure and another chance at it, um, I didn't get it there either, you know? So the end of my career wound up, <laughs> you, you would like it to probably be reversed, right? Like the beginning of your career, lean years, not making a playoffs. And then, you know, you got championship years at the end. Mine was kind of the opposite. It's funny. You brought up uh, the Charlotte and that's just kind of newsworthy real quick. I want to get your, your, your take on this. Um, Jordan is, is looking to be, Michael Jordan is looking to sell at least a majority stake of the, of the, uh, the the Hornets franchise. And I don't really want to get into that because, like, who cares about the why of why he's selling? But I do want to understand, like, 
What was my MJ like as an owner or as like a, as a front office person when you were there? Like, I remember the stories of, or like seeing the stuff of like he'll practice with you and stuff or like he'll, he, he was, you know, he was one of those guys that like, he still felt like he could play, but like, what was it like on a day to day when, cause and then you also lived where he, y'all lived in the same like complex. Like, what was that dynamic? Like, what was it like when Jordan was in the front office at that point? I didn't see Mike much. I mean, I he was there, like, and I, you know, MJ was my guy, like, growing up. I, I, he was a god. Um, but I, I just, he wasn't around a lot, like, when in terms of the practice days and stuff like that. Um, he'd be at the games and he was supportive. And, you know, it was really cool to have him sitting a few people down from you when you were playing. And there was an element of, like, you don't want to discipline Mike. That's Mike. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I wasn't, you know, I don't, I don't think I was really acutely aware that he was there from day to day and he wasn't like, like hands-on in that regard. Uh, Rod Higgins was our general manager. Um, you know, that's MJ's boy. So I'm sure he was around more than I knew. I just didn't see him a lot. Uh, and it was crazy. Have I told that story on air before about him living in, in the building? Was that an on-air story? You said that. I, I don't know if you never divulged it. Like you, I, I don't remember. I just know it is like something we've talked about. I don't know if it's come on the pod yet. So, I mean, I, it was funny to me, like, right. He's, he owns the team I'm playing on and, you know, I was at the end of my deal. So I like stability. I didn't really like bouncing around. So I, I wanted to stay in Charlotte, even though, you know, at the time when I got there, it wasn't hella stable. Um, you know, I would thought that we could build something stable there. Right. And so, you know, I was hopeful that I'd be able to stay there. My wife and I liked the town. We had our two young boys. Like it was great. It was close to home, close to her home in New York. Um, so, you know, my agent, I guess had started having talks and stuff like that, but you know, I go home in the summer and you know, you're about your daily business. And someone said to me once, like a valet was like, Hey Raj, uh, you know, have you seen Mike? And I'm like, I mean, I live in Miami. There are a lot of Mike's Mike, who, who are we talking about? And they're like, MJ. And I was like, no, man. Like, what do you mean? I haven't, I haven't been in Charlotte in a month. They were like, what do you mean? He lives in the building. And I said, what, what building? They were like, he, he lives in this building. And I said, man, cut it out, bro. This is Mike. This is an apartment building. Michael Jordan yeah. here. I, I would definitely know. Now, mind you, in this particular building, from the, from the parking levels, there is an elevator that only accesses three doors per floor. Okay. So mm. when it gets to my 18th floor, there are only three doors that when you get out of that elevator, you can go to. Right. And they're all right, right across the hall from each other. So he's like, I think he lives on uh uh man, I don't know, but he drives that this particular car and I think he lives on 18. And I was like, 18? Bro, I was like, man, if you don't get I live on 18, dog, there is no way in hell that if MJ lived in this building and on 18 to boot, that I wouldn't see him. I've lived here for years. So you know, I, I'm getting in the elevator to, to go play golf, I think, one day. I, I hustle out. The elevator doors are closing, right? I hustle out, uh, put my hand in the elevator. The door swings open like in a movie. And guess who's fucking standing there? Michael fucking Jordan. Michael Jordan. <laughs> this man has been living across the hall from me for I don't know how long, dog. And, and moving in relative silence because... I was all over. That's how MJ do though. Oh man, like they, they call him black cat for a reason. Like dog, I had two kids, right? So like my right. kids 
we're all over this building. We're in the pool. We're in the weight room. Um, we are downstairs riding uh, uh, scooters across the, my kids are everywhere. So there's yeah. no nook and cranny in this building that I'm not in at any given time. And this man has been living across the hall. <laughs> and I've seen people going in and out of the door across from me, like all the time, speak to them, pleasantries, all of that. Ain't nobody said yeah. to me, hey, you know, the owner of the team you play for lives here. I'm like, yeah. oh, hell no. So what was the cover? Like, did you say, what, what, how are you feeling when that moment? Man, it was so weird. Like it was. Did he say hello, Raja? Like what? The oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We had a, we had a laugh about it. We, we, you know, a small talk on the way down in the elevator. Um, you know, I, it, it, it was anticlimactic. I, it was, it's just what it but was. But how weird is it, bro? Cause like I've been around with like, I've been around, I mean, we've both been around famous people. There's two types of famous people. There's famous people's like, oh shit, that's bro. Like, oh, okay. That's, that's to him. And it's like, Oh shit! That's that's bro. Like that's that's bro. And I'm 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 assuming that this was the latter for you. I know you played against Mike, but then you're like, what the fuck is life right now? That feels like a what the fuck is life moment at that point. Well, at that point, it, it was kind of like that. I think I probably said something to him about playing playing some golf, right? Because I know you know he's a big golfer, and at the time I was I was a really big golfer. So I think I said something to him like that. Um, yeah, man. Again, I'm in a contract negotiation, not a negotiation, but I'm asking for, for a new contract. So it was a little weird. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know. MJ and I were fine, but it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like I was starstruck to the point where I couldn't speak, but it wasn't like we had a, we had a golf game after I, I said we should either. Wait, did he curve you? Did he was like, ah, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Yeah, yes, something like that. Yes, <laughs> he curved. He was like, "Yo, let's get on the links." He was like, <laughs> "Something like that." Damn, bro, that make me feel bad because, like, I don't know if people, you got to go back in the archives to get this story. But Raja uh, had the opportunity a few years back to go uh, play golf with Michael Jordan um, a few years ago, and I think it was through Rip Hamilton who came on the show once and. He didn't because he had to do a podcast called Real Ones. So I I feel like I owe Raja every couple of years. Every time we talk about Mike, I feel like I owe Raja. Like, I don't know what I can get him, but like, I feel like, damn, dog. Well, they take one for the team. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, work comes first. We all have our priorities. Um, just, uh, I don't know if there's, you know, hey, well, I'll, I'll send you a bill. We'll figure it out. <laughs> for sure. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man. I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20 for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. It's enough of story time on Real Ones. This is clearly a story time, Real Ones, but all right, we're, it's Monday. It's about that time, okay? Kitty Kerm out of the motherfucking cut once more. Yeah, it's time for snow talk. Um, we the latest episode of uh, of Snowfall had us. I, so let me just let me let me let me let me preview this really quickly for people. So Kerm saw this late. Me me and uh, Kerm saw the episode late. I saw the episode late. Raja saw this the earliest because he's on the East Coast. We get a text late at night on a Wednesday night, but before Snowfall even comes on, like. Yo, snowfall in all caps with the thing. And I'm well, me and Kerm are like, yo, chill, chill, relax. But he's like, nah, bro, just, y'all just wait. And boy, was that ending crazy. Kerm, what we got? What we got for Snow Talk? What's going on? What's good, guys? You know, we got to kick it off with the ending of the episode. So we got to talk about Franklin just killed, essentially, he just or he killed the father of a CIA agent, former CIA agent, you know, however you want to look at it. Either way, he murked Teddy's pops. So we got to talk about it. What the fuck happens now? Like, where do you go from here? <laughs> like, this is midseason. How does uh, Teddy retaliate? Let's start there. Man, I will listen. Retali- re- Teddy already killed Franklin's pops, right? So, like, True. I feel like this is retaliation to some degree, right? Where Teddy goes from here, I don't know. Wait, Raja, real quick. Do we know that Teddy killed? He killed Franklin's him, pops. We all Do know, we know that. Well. Like it okay. didn't. It didn't really right. show it. Show it, but we know. We know he all killed right. him. All right. We all know. Right. Okay. Franklin is. So what struck me was the look that that his girl and and moms gave him in that moment. <laughs> did you see? Did you see the the effect? Did you see their faces? Just see, like, bro. There's no coming back from that, dog. You have. You're. They're. They're out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they no. are out. Yeah. No matter what happens now, they are out. Going from piggybacking on what Raja said, remember last episode before this one, where Franklin's mother-in-law is talking to her baby and was like, "Are you sure that you want to go through with this?" Because Franklin doesn't seem like a guy. There's an end point to this, and Franklin doesn't seem like a guy that's about to let up. So if you want to get out, you should get out right now. And she's like, no, I'm standing by my man. And so all of that was a precursor to them being on the couch right there and seeing a man <laughs> and seeing what happened transpired. That might be too gory to explain what happened and how he died on he this podcast. He with the quickness. Let's just say it that way. Let's say it that way, right? And they every that conversation came back around and you could see Franklin's boo-boo like, oh, fuck. So... It's it. I think the sign of this is too far gone. Franklin is just Franklin's. Franklin's gonna die. Franklin's is over with for Franklin. It's over with. Yep. Yeah. Now let's talk about uh, Teddy's dumbass daddy. Cause like, 
I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna keep it a bean, bro. And I, I know there needs moms are kind of fine. But first of all, she don't even look old, just pulling up in the retirement home and, and your first instinct is, yeah, I'll leave with you. I just met you five minutes ago. Like I'm not saying dude deserve to die, but come on now. Thoughts? I think that we got to really give respect to how it probably feels at a retirement home where like you ain't getting no type of friendship at all. Like no type of human interaction. No one loves you. It's very tough there. Right. So the first like he probably ain't had a real deep conversation like that in years because, you know, Teddy ain't coming to that. motherfucker. <laughs> Teddy ain't coming to visit. You know, you who knows how long it's been. So while it was it was it was a fatal mistake. I understand. I really do understand why he did it. I get it. Take that a step further. I mean, she is a professional hustler, right? Like that's not like you got duped by, by just a random that popped in. Like that's, that's what she does for a living, right? Like she is, she is a professional hustler. I have a grandmother that's 90 some years old um, in a facility that my mom and my aunties and them go visit. Like it's, that's very difficult on her. And Mm -hmm. if a, 75 year old semi-attractive dude came in there and she might bounce with him today. I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we go. I mean, Nanny, I Nanny, Nanny might be out. We might be like, Nanny, where the fuck did Nanny go? <laughs> I understand. I understand, bro. I get it. I'll say that. What's the next question, Kermit? All right, we got two more. So, you know, we got to talk about Leon. This is turning into the Leon podcast from being honest, but Dude, you know, after all this hotel shit, all this, you know, I'm a changed man. I went to Africa. He back in the game now. But I'm going to ask you guys and let you guys frame this how you want to frame it. Is he, you know, the, the savior of the hood, sacrificing his morals to give the community what he needs? Or is he simply just a blatant hypocrite hotel dude that just got right back in the game? What do you guys think? I don't, I mean... <laughs> I, I'd like to think it's the former. I'd like to think it's the former. I'd like to think that he sees a need. He doesn't like what's going on. Um, and he will sacrifice to, to, to at least lend some level of stability. If that's, if that's possible. Um, but at the end of the day, it does make you a hypocrite, right? Like it does, yeah. even if, if you're yeah. the former. So you're going to fall into that category regardless. Um, you know, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm worried about Leon. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about Wanda. Listen, hold on. Listen, listen, hold on. Where's my camera? Camera's right here. Wanda, <laughs> Wanda, look at me right here. Wanda, you need to take your ass home. Go somewhere else. You take you take the flight to Africa and you get the fuck out. Because, because Leon out here, you knew it was bad business when Leon comes out with the white beater and he's calling motherfuckers out of their name and he's over here saying it's a new sheriff in town and I'm taking over the streets and it's my turn. You saw her in the back. No, boo-boo. Go to the go to the Beverly Wilshire. You got money. Go to the Beverly Wilshire for a night. Go to the spa. And then take your ass back to Africa. Okay? That's all you need to do and never look back. It is over. Leon don't love anything but the streets. It's over. Go home, boo-boo. Go back to Africa. Go over there. Another, another, another look at a man in the last episode that was very, very like visceral. You could read her face. The look on her face when she saw, she was like, damn, that's a wrap. 
A lot of women seeing that they dudes ain't shit on this episode, bro. A lot. That's literally all we're seeing in this episode. It's just realizations that they dude ain't shit. Like you can see, because because I love the cinematography on this, and every time Franklin or Leon makes a bad decision, there's always a pan to the women. Like we, what the fuck did we just get ourselves into? All right, what's the last question, bro? What's the last question, Kurt? Uh, okay, 1.5 1. questions. This is a follow-up on Leon. Over, under, for episodes left before we see Leon get put on a t-shirt. Let's be real now. Over, under, one and a half episodes. I'm going to take the over, but, like, not that much. I'm going to take the over on one, one, one and a half episodes on now. What you think, Ra? I think Leon's the last man standing, bro. You Somehow, right. huh? You Somehow, right. huh? You know what it might be? I do. So at the end of the at the end of the wire, when Marlo like ends up winning, right? But he doesn't end up winning because the new dude. I think that's gonna be the ending with Leon. That's the argument for the ending with Leon. That like he wins the game, but he doesn't really win the game because he loses everything. Yeah, I think I think Leon has has been the only one that's shown you like some level of understanding that it's bigger than that at some point in the show i think and so you got such a, sp- a soft spot for leon bro no i think it'll be poetic to have him standing while all the rest of the cast that they saw it too late you know like like rome is trying to see it but it might be a little too late bro you you done you done too much we'll see i got i got over one and a half episodes but i don't think he's gonna last for full transparency i think he's gonna get popped let's uh let's wrap this up with jerome uh what is going on with this dude is he in like a midlife crisis it seems like he's ready to get out the game but doesn't see a, a way out the game where where are we going with him right now my man look like he needs a, a trip to africa too <laughs> just by himself though <laughs> louis ain't going he, he to africa go. louis ain't going <laughs> Louis, no, Louis, listen, you talk about somebody that is like that might get popped very soon. Louis is looking like they on the way. So but I, I think that I think that bro needs to go to Africa and he needs to just leave it all behind, bro. None of this stuff is is none of this stuff is fruitful. You got all that money and you stressed every day that you're going to get popped. You know where you don't feel that way? Africa. Go to Africa. Yeah, it's, it's I'm with you. I know I. Uh, it's a deeper conversation. Like, I don't, when is enough enough? Like, when do you have enough for it to be enough? I mean, clearly, like, I've never sold drugs and I don't know the allure of it. And I'm not judging, but I'm just saying at some point, you know. D- Stop spending money on Versace shirts, stack for three months to take your ass out of the country <laughs> and dip. <laughs> sell all your cars, sell all your houses and get the fuck out. <laughs> Go, bro. Yeah, man. I, He's one of my favorite characters at Real Talk. Like, Uncle Rome is my guy. So that's going to be hard for me, but I think he is going to get caught up. Bro, his partners don't even want nothing to do with him, bro. He went to the to the car lot, and he over here got the strap, bro. He bringing heat to, like, his partners who are out of the game. Everybody, bro. And Louis is too, like, Louis is, Louis don't even care about the bread. Louis just cares about being the boss. She just wants to win. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, if you go... If you don't divest from that, that's gonna get you. That's gonna get you killed. Thank you, Kerm. That was another edition of Snow Talk, and that's been another edition of Real Ones. Um, Raja is no Raja on Thursday episode. He is going to be raising kids and having a lot of fun in Florida. So we will see Raja um, next Monday. We'll, I will see you guys on on Thursday, man. We'll talk soon, man. Tap in, holla, all of it. Bye.